It's great to be with you guys. Man, do I love Dean. I love this church. And uh, Dean really helped me not mess up ministry. <laughs> because uh, young adult ministry and working with young people is not easy. And uh, he helped us suck a little bit less many years ago. And so I have great gratitude for him, this house, what he's doing. Same with Darnisha. Like, probably about, a, gosh, eight years ago or something. We knew Darnisha before she was, you know, as cool as you guys know her. Because she was always cool, but we thought we knew her first. So you guys are awesome and, and blessed to have her. Um, I want you guys to know that uh, I'm going to be talking on the will of God tonight. And so there's a book. So maybe I should start back. I'm not an author. I, I don't write books. I don't do ministry for a living. I make software for a living. So when I discovered what the will of God was according to the scriptures, because that was the, the pursuit I went, because all of us have these ideas about what the will of God is. And I had a man who's like, well, why don't you go and find every passage in the Bible and learn about it? And I found out that none of what I used to believe was true. And so I was so compelled by it. I was like, I should maybe put this into a format and have other people read it. So I created the book. And anybody who's here, um, you guys can have the book. You can have the audio version for free. You can have the digital version for free. And um, if you're the person who loves paper books, you like to hold it, I'll give that to you for free as well. So I just don't want anybody to allow you know, even 10 bucks or 5 bucks, whatever it is, to stop you from having this content. So know that. I'd be honored and thrilled for you to read it. And so um, this is going to be the first of three weeks. Uh, tonight, what I want to do is I want to center ourselves on misconceptions, lies, and just kind of like silly beliefs that we have about the will of God. And so that's what tonight's going to be about. Next week is going to be every scripture that we can know in the Bible about the will of God. And then the third week is going to be what do we do about evil, sickness, death, um, suffering, trials? Uh, because that's inevitably where this conversation goes. So I'm honored to be with you guys here tonight and share with that. So that's going to be the, the format for these next three weeks. I hope you guys can make it uh, all three weeks. And um, I'm starting with the lies and misconceptions tonight. And the reason I want to do that is because, oh, thank you, is... Because some, if you want to see something clearly, sometimes you have to remove all the obstacles out of your way. If you really want to know the truth about a passage or a scripture, sometimes you have to be willing to dismantle and to surrender what you've believed in the past. Hold on a second. <laughs> I plan to yell. No, I'm teasing. But I get fired up about this stuff. So, tonight... We're going to start on the lies, misconceptions, and misbeliefs about the will of God. But I want you to know, I'm probably going to upset some of you tonight. And I'm sorry in advance. <laughs> and I want you to hear from me that you don't have to agree with me. I'm not upset if you don't buy my book. I'm not upset if you don't believe what I have to say. My heart, I hope you hear this, is to be an honest and faithful broker of the scriptures and of the topic. And so if you have a suggestion, you have a viewpoint, you have, I love the conversation. If you're like, hey, have you ever thought about this? I would be delighted to talk to you. So I don't need to be right. I have done my research on this. I've, I believe that this is an honest interpretation of the scriptures. And if you don't agree, that's totally okay. It's not my life. It's your life. So we're going to be okay there. But let me tell you the area it's going to poke at in you that you're going to be uncomfortable with. I'm, I'm going to warn you because I know this is coming is that when you begin to, especially tonight, as we look at dismantling some of these beliefs we have, 
you are going to feel uneasy because it's going to feel like maybe God is not as powerful and as sovereign as maybe you've believed. And that's not the truth. God is all-powerful, all-sovereign, all-glorious, all-knowing. He is all of those things, okay? Hear me. But sometimes we can elevate God's sovereignty to such a degree that we eliminate our responsibility. And so that is going to be the little poker you feel tonight. If you want to live a powerless life, you are going to hate tonight. If you want to live a powerful life, you're going to love these next three weeks, and I promise you your life is going to be transformed. But there is no topic, I'm convinced, that's more important than the will of God. Why? It's because every believer wonders what is God's will for my life, for my city, my church. What is God's active role in determining the details of what happens? Every believer. And what you believe about the will of God will either advance your life or will either stall it. And what you believe about the will of God will either help you be a good friend or a lousy friend to someone who's going through trials and tribulations. Because how many know that Christians, while they mean well, can sometimes hurt a bad situation even more? That you actually can have how someone comforts you. Because believers will say stupid things when someone's in pain. And we know this. We say, well, it's all part of God's plan. It's all part of God's will. Now, one of the inspirations for me to write this book was a, a, a friend named Rachel, and she had twin daughters that were born premature, and they were in the NICU. And so it looked like they were going to recover, they were going to be okay, and then after a few weeks, they both passed away within hours of each other. And the Christian community, well-meaning people who love Jesus, came and said, well, this is God's will. It's all part of his plan. And what a damaging thing when someone needs healing to basically say, that loving God you have, this is his best for you. Not only is it wrong, but it, it says this God, this thing I love, is the author of unimaginable pain and anguish of my life. And I believe that if that's the God that we present to the world, the world is going to be like, this God is not worth knowing or loving. And that's exactly what I believe is at, at stake, because there's not as many atheists who say God doesn't exist, there's nothing. I believe there's people who say the version of God that you say exists, I don't believe in. He's not worth loving. And I don't disagree because when you say that God brings you cancer as part of his will and his plan, you are defaming his good character and his nature. And so I observed that what most Christians believe about the will of God after I did my study was not only like it's wrong and it's weird, but most Christians don't even, they can't even tell you more than one verse on the Bible about the will of God. But would you believe it that there are 70 70 passages in the Bible on the will of God. That is more mentions the will of God than Satan or the devil combined. And yet most believers can't give you more than a handful. But we as believers, we use the will of God in dis deciding decisions of our life. We consider the will of God whether we join a job, whether we leave a job. We use the will of God to whether we get married or sometimes even we get divorced. I've seen people use the will of God to justify their affair. I've seen the will of God justify people who move, who stay, who uh, we've seen the news that that's God's will that our church has a private jet, right? Now, I don't have a problem with a private jet. I just have a problem with you saying it's God's will for you to have a private jet. Ladies, have you ever had a, a man who said, 
I think God wants us to date. It might be God's will for you to date. And you should reply to him, I think it's God's will that you should know the scriptures is what you should reply. <laughs> Don't date a man who says, I say, go learn your Bible first and then come back to me after you repent of that. We also use the will of God to explain why things happen. We also use God's will to explain why things didn't happen either. We, ex- we use God's will for why someone got healed, why someone didn't get healed. I love it that tonight was like, it's your will that we get healed. It's awesome. We use God's will to describe a natural disaster, why a natural disaster didn't happen as well, why someone got sick, why someone got better, why someone's suffering, why someone's prospering, why someone is rich, and why someone's poor. The will of God is in every area of our life. And when we reference God's will incorrectly, do you know who suffers? God's character. When we miss it, we get it wrong. The things we say and believe about him, his character and his nature and his fame gets damaged. And I believe that the version of God that we present, because we will say things like the death of your infants is part of God's will, that we actually defame what we believe is a good-natured God. That you, you, you can't have those two ideas coexist. And so we cannot allow the things of the enemy, sin, sickness, death, disease, we cannot allow those things of darkness to be ingredients of light. That's where the will of God is going to take us. And it liberates us not only to know that God is true, that he's good, he's correct, but also empowers us. Romans 12.2 says, I pray that you be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you would be able to test and approve what the will of God is. And it says, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. So you and I, we actually are biblically instructed to test the will of God. Isn't that fun? But most of us are just going off of what we heard from somebody else. So this is your opportunity for the next three weeks to test and approve the will of God. And so let me remind you again, because I really want you to hear this, that I am okay if you disagree. And I don't, I would love, I'll give you my cell phone number. If something really ruffled you, let's talk. And because I'm going to give the best job I can tonight, but there's so much here that I can't do all of it justice. So if you have an idea you want to talk about, I'll dedicate some time after tonight, just some, some Q&A, just on the topic tonight. But I want you to know that um, I'm for you. I, I don't need to be right. I just want to be an honest broker of the scriptures. Amen? All right. So the first part of the night, right, is going to be the lies, misconceptions, and mispre- uh, misrepresentations of God's will. So let's talk about some of these. The ones I'm going to cover tonight are God's will always comes to pass. It's impossible to be outside of God's will. Nothing you can do can stop the will of God. Everything happens for a reason. God won't give you more you can handle, and God is in control. These are the realms of which God's will is incorporated into, and so I'm going to go efficiently through these, but I could tell you, I could spend an hour on each one of these, but because I care about your attention span, I won't. So the first one, God's will always comes to pass. God's will always comes to pass. A permutation of this is it's impossible to be outside of God's will, and nothing can stop the will of God. These are three of the same ideas, all right? And so this is the view that everything that happens is God's will. If it happened, it's God's will. If it didn't happen, it's not God's will. Someone said tonight to me, oh, I can't make it tonight. I'm so sorry. I was like, I guess it's just not God's will for you to be there, which is wrong, okay? So that's, that's an incorrect, abusive, manipulative way to use God's will. 
And so we have to ask ourselves, well, so is God's will always accomplished? How do we understand this? And sometimes the answers to Scripture are plain in sight. We all just need to look at how Jesus instructed us to pray to find the first clue. And this is Matthew 6, 9. It says, pray then in this way, your kingdom come, your will be done. You guys know this, on earth as is in heaven. We all know this prayer. And so as we say and believe that God's will always come to pass, all of us have memorized a verse that tells us that God's will doesn't always come to pass. Jesus tells us to pray for God's will to be done on earth as is in heaven. Now, why would Jesus instruct us to do that if God's will wasn't already being done on earth as is in heaven? We pray for things as they should be, not as they are. If God's will always was done on earth, he would tell us to pray, thank you, Father, that your will is always done on heaven. But no, he instructs us to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is an important distinction that Jesus makes, is that heaven and earth had different outcomes as it pertains to God's will. We pray for God's will to be done on earth. We pray for this to happen as what already is in heaven. Is that making sense? And so in this sense, we get to understand that what God's will is in heaven, where it's always done, we pray that that same dynamic of God's will being done would happen on earth for the exact reason that God's will is not always done on earth. And in a sense, you know the verse, the promises of God are yes and amen, right? So we actually can believe for something that God says yes in the heavenly realms that we've not yet experienced on earth. There is a partnership. There is a relationship between what God has said yes and amen in him, because that's what it says. In him are the promises yes and amen. But sometimes he can have a yes in heaven and in him that aren't a yes on earth yet. And that's where we get to co-labor with Christ. So the truth is heaven is perfectly conformed to God's will. Earth is not. God's will is always done in heaven. Earth, it is not. And we see this all over the scriptures. One of my favorite passages is Matthew 16, 19, where Jesus looks at the disciples and says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loosen on earth will be loosened in heaven. Again, we're seeing this difference between heaven and earth. Heaven and earth are not in sync. Now, this ruffles a lot of feathers by the notion that heaven and earth are out of union as far as it relates to God's will. And when we understand that heaven and earth are out of union, that they're not in sync, that we actually have God's will being done in heaven that's not being done on earth, what happens is we understand that man has a responsibility on earth to bring God's will from heaven to earth. This also ruffles feathers. And so people will be like, well, where's that in the Bible? Well, it's easy. Psalm 115, verse 16 says, The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth has been given to man. That's why the will of God in heaven is not the same as the will of God on earth. And so this is not a new concept. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God creates mankind and places him in charge of the earth. And God gives a man and Eve, man and woman, to stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what does Adam do and Eve do? They disobey. And when he disobeyed, not only did sin enter mankind, he brought shame and sin in, but he also gave authority to Satan. 
What we miss at the Garden of Eden is Adam and Eve disobeying, but then empowering the devil at the Garden of Eden. It's just not that he didn't listen. Satan was powerless until man surrendered his authority and power to the devil. A lot of people don't know this, that God looked at Adam and Eve and says, I make you powerful, I give you all dominion, I give you all authority. And at the fall, they actually surrender that authority to Satan. How do we know this? Is that when the devil is tempting Jesus, takes him to the highest point, shows him the earth, remember? What does the devil say? He says, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me. And I will give it to whomever I wish. How can Satan tempt Jesus with giving him all the earth and say it's been handed over to me? We know that Jesus didn't hand it over to him, huh? And now it makes sense when we look at Luke chapter 10, verse 19, when Jesus says to us, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. The fall has Satan empowered, who then has authority and power, tempts Jesus saying, all of this has been given to me. Jesus raises from the dead, looks to man and says, I've given you authority. Do you see that pattern? So what does this mean? Is It means that our lives, when Jesus says, I've given you authority, is that we're supposed to live powerful lives filled with authority to take back that which was surrendered to Satan. But wait, the God, but God's will always comes to pass, right? And so despite that, that idea, God's will always has to come, God's will always comes to pass, has a lot of problems, particularly in the garden. We can argue about it all we want in the here and now about what God's will. We actually have to answer what was God's will back in the garden as well. And if everything that happens is God's will, then we actually have to be okay with that God's will was for Adam and Eve to disobey. And we'll find out why that's very problematic next week. But we have to understand that if everything happens is God's will, and Adam and Eve disobeyed, that that was God's will, which if that is true, then it's God's will that people would reject God and who are also in hell. Now we've got a big problem with God. (laughs) That people, because when people say everything is part of God's will, what they are meaning to say is it could not have been any different. The way it happened is the way it happened. It could not have been any different. If that's the case, then then God is creating people specifically to go to hell. I find that kind of a problem. And you should too. And we'll find out why more next week. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, hold on. I don't know if there's anybody who went to seminary. But this is where theologians invent a ton of jargon and a ton of terminology. And one of the reasons I wrote a book on the will of God is there's all these people who invent terms to describe the will of God. You have the permissive will of God and the passive will of God. And, the you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, like, is it this complicated? You shouldn't have to go to seminary to understand the will of God. Jesus celebrated that the kingdom is for infants and children. That if we have to go to seminary to understand these terms, and Jesus is like, oh, man, well, you know, there's the five points, and we got to make sure you know it. Like, no, like, the scriptures do an excellent job of informing theology just a part of themselves. But even if this, if you're still not convinced, if, if those things, if you're still not convinced that God's will doesn't always happen, if you believe that God's will always comes to pass, then I need to show you the single verse in all the Bible that talks about a situation that happens 
that is not God's will. It's Matthew 18, 14, and it says, This is not the will of my Father who is in heaven, that any of these little ones should perish. This is not the will of my Father who is in heaven, that any of these ones should perish. He's talking about salvation. Jesus is saying that any soul that perishes without him has fallen outside the will of God. So unless you say that God's a universalist, that he saves everyone, we have a major problem on our hands. Because Jesus points to this and says, when this happens, this is not the will of my Father. And so just on the topic of salvation alone, which we'll talk about next week, we must concede that as long as there are people who are rejecting God and not receiving salvation, that there are people who fall outside the will of God. And that God's will doesn't always come to pass. And God's will for some person can be halted. It's actually biblical for us to look at every believer and say God's will for their life is for them to know Jesus. Isn't that liberating? Not like, oh, I don't know. I got to check. Do you have the salvation card in your back pocket? I don't know. It's God's will that every single person is saved. So we'll talk more about that next week. You guys okay so far? No one has stormed out yet. This is great. All right, so let's talk about some popular Bible verses. Everything happens for a reason. God works in mysterious ways. God won't give you more than you can handle, and God is in control. Now, these verses are some of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Don't you love them? We have tattoos on these things. I mean, it's great. Anybody notice the problem with what I just said? They're not Bible verses. When I was like, oh, I know it's in there somewhere. Somewhere. You know, it's like Colossians 17. It's got to be in there somewhere. Let's take these one by one. Everything happens for a reason. Again, I know people who've got tattoos of this. I'm like, oh, man. This one is said all the time. And nothing can be more damaging to a proper understanding of God's will than these five words. And it basically means that everything happens is part of God's will. Again, this kind of continual idea that everything is fixed and is predetermined. And this is a misquote and misunderstanding from Romans 8.28, which says, and we all know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Now, if you gloss over this passage, you would interpret this that God causes all things, and then all things will cause good. But that's not what it says. It says God causes all things. Like, cool, God causes all things. All right, awesome. No, 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 no. God causes all things to work together. It's a much different idea. God causes all things to work together. This verse tells us that God responds to situations that happen that are outside his will. It means that God is not going to allow a situation to go unanswered. Evil, sin, sickness, death, disease, suffering, it is not going to have the final say that God is going to respond to what happens. Now, I have heard people say that bad things are required to have good things. They say, oh, man, you got laid off in your job. Man, this just means you're going to have a big promotion, you know. Or you didn't show up for work. <laughs> I hear people talk about, oh, man, my financial hardship is so bad. Like, and, oh, it just means that your financial blessings on its way. No, I think it's probably because you racked up so much credit card debt. And so this, this notion that 
that God needs a bad ingredient to cause good is a complete terribly, it's a terrible idea. That God does not need something bad to happen in order to cause good. I don't know about you, but I always had this relationship between good and bad. I thought if things are really going good, I better not enjoy it because, man, if, I'm, if something's good's going, something bad's on its way. And I had the opposite side. Oh, man, something bad, but that just means something good's going to happen. And to break the union of those two ideas, because God does not need something bad. You can live in a position of favor and prosperity, and God doesn't need to humble you with something bad. Because the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What is the kingdom? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That means that God does not need to bring suffering to you in order to cause joy and peace. Those are two different ideas. Again, we cannot associate things of darkness as ingredients for light. But God can use any situation to cause good. So the truth is, everything doesn't happen for a reason. But God will use everything that happens for a good purpose. Do you understand that? And God's hand is not found in sending a situation. God's hand is found in reworking a situation. God is not causing the bad situation, but neither does he ignore it. Instead, God exploits bad to cause good. He makes sure that no bad situation, no calamity, no, that nothing that befalls us has that final answer. Now, that doesn't mean that God is going to convert a bad situation into a good one. You can't look at the death of two infants and say, something good and better is going to come from the loss of my two babies. I don't care what it is. There are some things that you're like, God, you can cause good, but we are not guaranteed that something better is going to result from something bad that happens. Are you with me? And so here's the thing about this verse is that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. We are not promised how, when, or to whom that good is caused. Something bad might happen. God's promise for those who love him is that there is going to be good caused from it, not in equal proportion, but also not to the same person. You can go through a terrible, awful divorce, and I can receive a wake-up call to go to marriage counseling and save my marriage. That what happened for you, that God is going to use someone's testimony something terrible that happened to them, to now be exploited for good, that I now get to choose to live a life of freedom, that I now get to choose a life that honors him. And so as these stories that we have, these things that we experience, we are not always the intended recipient. Maybe God gives us something great from it. Maybe, maybe he converts it to something that's even better. Possibly. That's not the promise. We cannot bank on that. But we also have to know that what happens to us when God is going to begin to rework it he likely is going to benefit others, not just ourselves. Is that making sense? All right. God won't give you more than you can handle. This one kind of gets me. In other words, God is assessing your ability to survive whatever he sends you. He's like, oh, man. Yeah, no, a disease probably was too much for them. I think I'll just give them a really bad flu this time. And you're like, this is a terrible thing. That is being said about God. No, no good father 
looks at their child and says, how far can I get them to the breaking point? It's a terrible thing to even presume about God. And so this is an attempt to comfort those who are in trials and tribulations. If you were in the thick of it and people are like, oh, yeah, you know, God's got you. You know, he won't give you anything more than you can handle. Except this comes from a misinterpretation from 1 Corinthians 10. It says, no temptation, keyword there, no temptation has overtaken you, but which is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. And so when we look at the original passage here where we get this saying, we find two things. First is that we get the origination of the circumstance wrong. We say God won't give you more than you can handle, but we don't find God giving you anything here. So we've completely missed God's operative role in this, this idea. Is He's not doing anything. And, but he, so in the temptation, he's giving emergency exit. That's the only thing he's doing. He's not sending a situation for you, but he's giving you a way out, and he's put limits on it. Second, we find that the subject matter is completely different. When we talk about a very difficult season of our life, and we say, God won't give you more than I can handle, but the scriptures say, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. He's not talking about hard seasons of life. He's actually talking about the victory of the cross. He's telling you that you are a new creation. And when you became a new creation, you became powerful over sin, sickness, and death. That Romans 6.14, that sin shall not be master over you. So when you got saved, you became powerful and filled with authority to defeat sin and temptation in your life. That no longer will it have your number, that you'd actually be able to overcome it. And so the truth is this, that God does not give you trouble, but he is promising you that you will be, a, that you'll be joined with him in the midst of trouble. But in temptation, he'll give you a way out. So before salvation, you're incapable of resisting sin, but not after it. So God promises to always give you that emergency exit for it. So God does not give you trouble, but we find that Jesus reveals the source of trouble. So if God's not giving us trouble, where does it come from? And Jesus makes it very clear. I love how simple and clear the scriptures are. Jesus says in John 16, 13, it says, In the world you will have trouble. God, why are you doing this to me? He's like, I, did you not read my words? The world will give you trouble. But I've overcome the world. It would be weird... For God to be the author of your trouble and also your assistant. God is your comforter, not your afflictor. We're going to receive trouble in the world. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. Oftentimes you see God saying, like, man, there's going to be some suffering for my name's sake. Not because he's sending it, but because the world is going to afflict it on you. And he says, but take courage and take heart because I've overcome the world. And we also so often forget that Jesus rebuked storms. He didn't bless them. Notice that? He didn't see, the, oh, that's an awesome storm cloud. Just go level that city in Jesus' name. He halted the storms. And isn't it interesting, too, that back in the Garden of Eden, the charge to man was to subdue the earth, take dominion over it. It infers that the world kind of is out of control. It's interesting. 
But the idea that God would give us more than we can handle, it also presumes that we cannot mess up. How did Adam and Eve handle that Garden of Eden situation? Was it more than they could handle? Apparently. Didn't work out well. Adam and Eve failed. And so to say that God won't give you more than you can handle kind of makes him out to a drill sergeant that is assessing your ability. And what this is really saying is that you are powerful over temptation. You are victorious because of the cross, and nothing will ever master you, which is a fantastic truth. All right, God is in control. If you are not upset yet, this one will make you upset. It's the one that contributes most to the belief that everything that happens is God's will because God is in control. And if God is in control, then everything that happens must be his will. And this saying usually derives its support from a couple passages. Let me give them to you. The first one is in Proverbs 19.21. Some of you might know this. It says, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Other translations will say, but ultimately the Lord guides the steps. This sounds great. We all love this passage. Not a problem with that. Except we're like, wait a minute. So if many of the plans of the heart, but then God determines the steps and his purpose prevails, how does that work with God's will? Well, this is interesting because if we take a closer look at the original text here, this is the NIV. There it is. The NIV had said that the plans of the Lord will prevail. But as we look at the NASB, the New American Standard Version, the New American Standard Version is a word-for-word translation. It's harder to read because it's trying to take every Greek word word-for-word. NIV is a thought-for-thought. We just need to kind of get the general idea around here and make it readable. But when we look at the same passage in the New American Standard, look at what it says. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Now, him directing your steps, him having a purpose that prevails, is a lot different than the counsel of the Lord standing. Because the difference is, the, is that man has a heart that's going to come up with all sorts of crazy ideas. One day we're hot, next day we're cold. And it's saying that many are the plans of your heart, but the wisdom of the Lord is unchanging. It's not saying that many of the plans of your heart, and whatever you do, it's going to be God's will. It's saying, whatever is in your heart, know that God is unchanging. Man is not fickle, or God is not fickle. Man is fickle in his heart. He doesn't have the changing ways and thoughts and strategies in his heart. Another example we see this is in the New Testament, and Paul speaking to the Philippians. This is Philippians 3.20. It says, The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control— will transform our lowly bodies, and they'll be like his glorious body. Now, in this, it seems like it's undeniable that Jesus is bringing everything under his control. How do we get around this? Well, two things to notice. The first thing is the realm, that God will bring all things under, under control to transform your body into a glorious form. I don't know about you, but glorious is probably not one of the key words we would describe my body. And so we have to understand that this is talking about heaven. Again, earth and heaven are not in sync. So Jesus is going to bring all things under his control to make us into a glorious body. The second is that even though the the word control there is used, it's actually poorly translated. It actually means in the Greek 
to have submission to and to have authority over. And this brings up a really important reason to understand the influence of translations in our scriptures. I don't know about you, but I grew up on the NIV Bible. The NIV Bible is the most widely distributed version of the Bible in all the world, over 500 million copies. What's unique about the NIV Bible? It was translated by the Reformed Church of North America. Sounds cool. Except when you understand the Reformed Church of America, they have a bias for their view of theology that God controls everything. Okay. So when an NIV is a thought for thought, they're going to have this kind of influence of kind of tilting the scriptures to their view. You with me? What does this mean? Is it means that in the, the NIV, you actually find the word control 50 times. In the original NIV Bible, the word control is present 50 times in the Bible that I grew up on, maybe a lot of you grew up on. If you look at the New American Standard version of the Bible, the, thought, the word for word as opposed to a thought for thought, the word control appears nine times. Every instance of the word control, self-control. Isn't that interesting? But what about all those words that the NIV is using? How are they translating them? Oftentimes, they're using words that mean authority and authorship and dominion and influence, and they'll interpret it as control. So in the book of Job, it says God controls the clouds. It really means God authored the clouds. But that's why we have to be careful about where we get our scriptures from. And this is why I believe this belief that God controls everything and God's will always happens is so prevalent in our era is that we have grown up with seeing all these words that God controls everything. Now, here's the really, really funny part. Is that in the NIV Bible, there's this really unfortunate verse. 1 John 5, 19. It says that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Well, uh-oh. How does that work? Nobody finds these verses. God controls everything. Well, why don't you look at 1 John 5, 19 and tell me. And it's funny because you have in the same scriptures, the NIV telling you that Jesus controls clouds, lightning, minds, bodies, diseases, plagues, controlling everything. And then we have 1 John 5, 19 that says that Satan has control of the world. Well, which is it? Well, in here, this word means power and influence. I don't believe that, that God has control. He's, he has authority. He's given us authority. But I don't believe that Satan has control either because he empowered us to have authority. And so what this means is that Satan actually has power and influence. He doesn't have control. If Satan had control of the whole world, then you and I could not be held responsible for our sins. That would be a big problem. And that's because God isn't in control he is in charge. If you want to know the big difference here, is that God is in charge, not control. It's a big difference of idea here. There's a very big difference between God being in control and being in charge. It's actually against God's nature to control you. Think about it. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Huh. So it's actually against God's nature 
to control you when he's placed in you his nature which empowers you to control yourself. It would violate our freedom in our relationship with him to control. Control is anti-relationship. Some of you have dated people who are controlling, and you hated it. But God is in charge. And so we have to think about this, that this kind of notion that God controls everything kind of doesn't make sense based on the fruit of his spirit. But also that if he's controlling you, it means he's controlling everyone and everything else. It means that he's controlling traffic jams, infectious diseases, and who wins the World Series? It means that God is controlling who wins the office. I don't know about you, but I don't like to say that God's will is for anybody in particular is president. Whatever spectrum you are on politically, it's like God's will does not extend to the president's office in the United States. I, I just, I, as we dive into it next week, you'll see how clear the will of God is. But it is, our, it is his will that we actually respond to those who are placed in authority over us. There's a difference there. So we respond in God's will to respond to authority because God has created authority, and authority is a structure of the kingdom that we honor, but whoever's in the office is not God's control. I gave people with a ballot box, and people didn't show up, or people did show up. But we also have to consider that God controlling, we have to look at the things going on in Syria. We have to ask ourselves, is this a loving God? How is God controlling this that it couldn't be any other way? And so at this junction, people deny this distinction because they'll say, well, God is sovereign, and he is. But sovereign means that you have supreme authority and power, not control. That God is all-powerful, but just because you are all-powerful it means that you can limit your power however you please. You wouldn't be all-powerful if you couldn't limit your power, right? And so it's in God's all-powerful nature that he says, I'm giving you authority and giving you power. Because we hold on to those promises that our life means something, right? If we believe we're powerful and we have authority, that would be a disingenuous promise of the Bible if God controls you. So God uses his power and authority to make you powerful and have authority. And just because he is sovereign, I believe God is sovereign, I also believe that he is in charge in saying that, just almost like a referee, if you would consider, that he hands out rewards, right? After this life is over, we stand before him and we have rewards. The only way that you can get a reward for doing something good is if you have the opportunity to do something bad. And so he stands as giving the earth to man. I've given you power and authority. I've defeated the devil who you handed your authority over to, and now I've made you powerful. Now you go and bring the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of earth until the kingdoms of this world match the kingdoms of our Christ. So when we understand that God's will for us is actually be powerful people who have power and influence and actually take back the territory that the enemy stole from us. We now have a theology that welcomes us into being powerful people that doesn't get to rationalize, I'm not going to do something about that person because it's God's will that they're that way. No, God's will is for you actually to respond and to realize that poverty, sickness, disease, suffering is not God's will, and he lives inside you to bring heaven to that person. Our call is to bring heaven to earth. And it's really hard to believe that your life matters when you believe that everything that's going to happen is just going to happen the way it is. I know people 
who don't give to missions because whatever God's going to do, he's going to do. I'm not going to go to church because whether I go to church or not, you know, God's going to, like, your life matters. How you decide to live makes a huge difference. And so there's other ones. I'm going to stop there tonight. But I wanted to set that stage for you before next week when we look at what does the Bible actually say about the will of God, that we can kind of have our vision cleared, like all these previous beliefs, and be able to look at the will of God clearly as the Scripture reveals. And so that's what we're going to do next week. We're going to look at all 70, if you can believe this, all 70 passages on the will of God come down to one of three things. It's fascinating. You'll also be able to look and say, how does God's will apply to my life? Which is really what I think a lot of us want to know. And we'll also have a really good time looking at, in the last week, how do we understand a good God with a will who's empowered us in a world where there's an enemy who's still powerful? Sin, sickness, disease, poverty, tribulations, suffering. How do we respond to that? So that's it for tonight. I appreciate you guys being here. I thank you guys. And so now I want, if anybody's brave, you want to ask a question, I'd love to answer any questions or things that might have come up. If you want to fire away, I would be honored to have any things that come to your mind that you would have a question for. So while you're talking about uh, God's will, I'm thinking about Job. Um, His life before and the life after where God had to give permission to the devil, was it God's will involved before and after? I'm so glad you mentioned Job. The last week, week three, I'm going to talk about Job. Do you want me to give you the quick answer now, or do you want me to wait? Now? Okay. So, specifically asks, didn't God give Satan permission? Scriptures in chapter 1 says, have you considered my servant Job? Basically offering up. Well, in the Hebrew, it doesn't say, have you considered my servant Job? It says, why have you set your heart against my servant Job? Which is a totally different idea altogether. Why have you set your heart against my servant Job? And we know that's true because Satan tells God everything about Job that he knows. He's a righteous man. He fears you. He shuns evil. Satan is not getting the idea of Job. Or, yeah, Satan is not getting the idea of Job from God. Satan comes already knowing, I have someone I've already picked out. Here's something interesting, too. I'll cover this again, week three, because this is such a powerful thing. A lot of our bad theology on the will of God actually comes from the book of Job. So Satan is mentioned... 18 times in the Old Testament. 14 of those times. Do you know where they're mentioned? The book of Job. The book of Job is actually our greatest and most robust lesson on theology on Satan. Here's what's wrong with that. As neither Job nor his wife nor his friends ever notice and mention Satan. That's a problem. Satan comes to, oh, here's another thing, right? John 10.10, 10, 
The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come to give life. So Jesus is referencing this, steal, kill, and destroy. Well, clearly there's got to be some other reference. Jesus is referencing something. There's no Old Testament reference of Satan stealing, killing, and destroying except for the book of Job. There should be a footnote on John 10.10 that says, see the book of Job. Now, why on earth, because Job's like in the middle of the book, right? Why on earth is Job not realizing, you know, like, man, like, how did he miss this? Here's another interesting fact, is that when the book of Job was written, chronologically, it actually falls at Genesis 10. If that's true, and it is, <laughs> then the book of Job is the first time ever Satan stealed, killed, and destroyed. If that's true, it's the first time Satan was ever named Satan. Before he was just the serpent. At that time, Job didn't even know there were any, was anything that could exist that could take from him. Is that making sense? So when Job says God gives and takes away, he actually has no idea that anything is in existence that can steal, kill, and destroy. Now, you take the New Testament instruction about how we're supposed to do spiritual warfare, right? Resist the devil and he'll flee. Rebuke him. Like, we're giving the armor of God, right? Like, we are giving some great instruction. You take that and you parallel it to the Old Testament, and the book of Job actually should be a lesson on how to not engage with the devil. Anyways, I'll talk more about that in the last week. This is a great question. Why hear that? <laughs> um, thank you. Um, you really messed me up. Like, you really have messed my mind up. Amen. Because I had all those things I just said my entire me life. Too. Me I too. I just said those things. And the thing that you erred in was you said we don't need theology. Yes, we do. Like, because how would we have known that the book of the NIV Bible was all misconstrued on, on um, faults yeah. and not word for word? Now I need to go to school. That's yeah. all I'm saying. <laughs> now I need to go to school because, like, you have messed me up. I was sitting up here like, what the world? I know. Like, this is some deep stuff. Like, I've never even heard it this way. I know. Like, I'm coming here trying to find the will of God and you to mess me up. I'm thinking, <laughs> okay. Like, I really am messed up. Like, I'm thinking, like, is he right? Like, am I so, no, he say study him. Uh-oh, I might even have that wrong. Study to show yourself approved. Rightly divide the word of God. Now I got to go check you out to see where you get your stuff from in order for me to know what I'm doing. <laughs> I love it. Can we be friends? That's awesome. Thank you. No, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a recovering bad theology purveyor. Like, I had messages where you try to, and, and we, we've learned the language so much, it doesn't even seem weird to us now. You know, God's, you know, got a plan for your cancer. So my, my mother... This got personal to me. My mother came down with breast cancer. It's about four years ago. We're in the prayer meeting. People laying hands on them. And God, we just know this is your will for her, and you've got a plan and a purpose. And I'm sitting there like twitching, like out of my skin. 
And then there's a little pause. I'm like, God, thank you that cancer is not your will, and we take authority over that, and we declare healing. We know it's your will that she's healed, and we because it takes zero faith to believe that God has made you sick. It actually takes faith to believe that you're sick despite what God wants for you. But God says, I want you to be whole. In heaven, you're healed. So that's where faith comes in, is we actually have faith for what is not, not to try and like rationalize what is and try and make it faith. So yeah, I, I've, for a long time, I'm, I'm with you. I've said all those things and I, I feel just as ashamed that I ever told people. I, I've said some terrible things to people on these things. So I'm glad that it was information for you. <laughs> this is a, it's a, it's a great message, man. Um, I, Kendi has her book. I'm going to have to read it now. So um, but I do have a question. So I, I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. So when somebody prays for someone and it doesn't come to pass, you know, I don't want to say, is it because they didn't have enough faith, that they didn't pray to write scriptures? Like, how do we answer that question as well? Yep. Thanks for the softball question. Yeah. The first is you, you don't pray powerless prayers. Do you know what the sound of a powerless prayer is? God, if it's your will, would you heal them? Vague prayers get vague answers. So when God empowers you, he empowers you over authority of the devil, right? And so he, rebu- he did not like, oh, man, maybe Satan, you got a good point. Like, he rebuked the devil. He didn't mince words. So what's interesting, too, I didn't get into this because there's a lot to cover on the subject, but when Jesus says, would your will be done, it actually is not would your will be done. It's a declaration. Will be done. That's how it actually is. And so I think part of our prayers need to become not requests, but they need to be declarations for what is. And so our, our role is not to petition and plead with God and like, oh, would you? It's actually he's like, I've given you power. Why don't you take authority what's happening and tell it what to do? We're told to tell the mountains to get into the sea. We're not supposed to say, God, would you throw those mountains in the sea, right? So like our prayers and the object of where we're praying at, we're actually not supposed to be sending requests. We're supposed to be speaking to the issue. So there's that. Here's, I did a study on miracles. Went through the entire New Testament. It's like, show me every single time that Jesus healed somebody. And here's what I found that was interesting, is you find different patterns. So this is probably a different series altogether. I don't know why some things don't happen. I just know it's not on God's side of the equation. But in the study, it's interesting how Jesus would, go read the miracles, Okay you'll see he takes a people group from Galilee to Judea and then heals them there. The story where Jesus got rid of all the money changers, we think it's because they were making a storehouse of the temple, which is true, but he actually vacated all these people, and there were people in there to heal them inside. Remember the, the child who fell out the window? Jesus removed people from the house to heal them. Jesus couldn't do miracles in his own hometown, tough. Last one. Remember when the demon-possessed man said, I am legion? Remember that? The, the demonic spirit had a request. Does anybody know what that request was? It said, do not send me out of the region. 
there's something about geography. Jesus bringing, Jesus couldn't do miracles in his hometown, geography. Jesus took people from Galilee to Judea to heal them. The demon-possessed boy asked, don't, or the, the demon in the boy asked, do not get me out of the region. I wonder if geography has something. The people were there. The expectation of people upon us. Like, these are all different things. But here's, here's another one, and I know this is a long answer. Is this okay? You remember John the Baptist? He is in prison, right? And all the disciples are out having a great old time. And John the Baptist sends people to Jesus. Kind of like, hey, remember me? I'm still in here. And Jesus says, tell John the Baptist, the blind see, the lame walk. Okay, that's helpful. And then he says, tell him, blessed are those who do not lose their faith on account of me. Basically telling them, it's not going to work. Blessed are you when you don't lose your faith by something I didn't do. Our challenge is actually to have faith when we're disappointed. When God doesn't come through, we're blessed when our faith is actually not contingent upon us getting the result. I think it's a lot more complicated than we think. I just know the problem is not on God's side of the equation. But we have to realize that God is not a genie who's looking to grant wishes. And we're also spending a lot of time praying powerless prayers. <laughs> and so we need to have this mindset that we're powerful. God has equipped us. We have the keys to bind on earth and bind in heaven, loose on earth and loose in heaven. We, we've, given, we've been given these keys, and we do our best. We do our part, and we do everything we know how to take authority over. Maybe sometimes the things that we don't get answers to is we've not identified the thing we're after. God, just kind of fix it. You know, again, vague prayers get vague responses. And I wonder that our ability to have faith, even in the disappointment, that I'm going to still pray for you, even though I pray this prayer a hundred times, it never came through. I'm going to approach you with the same faith. Because sometimes when we pray for, let's say, someone to get well, in the back of our mind, we think of, I've never prayed for someone that have gotten well. We cannot allow our faith to be hurt by what God didn't do. Does that make sense? Cool. Any question there? These are a lot more difficult questions than I was expecting. I'm proud of you guys. Hi, Eric. Um, I agree with the young lady. You messed my head up. I have three questions. I'll get to the point, and then you answer them accordingly. Uh, the first one, King James um, yep. is one of the... It's so word for word. Of it tries, it yep. is. Okay, yep. so how many times is the word used for control, uh, the word control used in King James? Okay. And also, how many other words are misconstrued in the Bible um, with the NIV and the others? I just want sure. a little bit more clarifications on that. And then the will of God, all of the trials and tribulations that I've undergone, it made me feel so much better knowing it was for the will of God, the purpose that I'm called on earth to do. So now you messed me up because <laughs> everything I've gone through, like Joyce Myers and some other, Pastor Dean mentioned his stories. I was thankful because I could use that to encourage other people. So I totally. want you to touch that on okay. that. And then um, explain your encounter. Sorry, you guys. Explain your encounter. Um, how did you hear this truth? Because this, I've never heard this. And I am definitely a God lover, ch server, church <laughs> 
girl. So I never heard the word delivered like this. Awesome. Okay, that's it. Okay, so number one, I, I don't know how many times the word control is used in the, in the King James Version. It's not nearly as many. And it tries to be a word for word. But the NIV was had good intentions to communicate a readable version of the Bible. And so the NIV, like, I, I, I actually still read the NIV, but I just know that if I find a tricky verse, to not entirely trust it. So that's one. Um, <laughs> the second question was... Oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, I do know... I might talk on this on the third week, but there's a story in the Bible where... The disciples looked to a blind man and said, who sinned, him and her his parents? And then Jesus replies, neither. He's blind so that the glory of God will be revealed to him. And this is where we get this direct connection that God made you blind so that I could heal you. Bad theology. If you look at the NASB on that verse, and oh, I like it, maybe the King James does this, but... It will put in, in regular font case, words that are directly transferable from the original to not. And when they're not, when they're inferred, the translators think, I think this is what they're trying to say, they will put them in italics. And so you can quickly, if you read a verse-for-verse -verse translation, you can kind of find where there's direct hits and, and not. But in that verse, it's another one of those verses that is being used to create this bad theology that God is afflicting you as part of his plan for his glory. And also the thing about the Greek is there's no punctuation. So you read all the Greek, and how many know that, that where you insert a period changes the entire meaning? So I won't get probably into this the verse in the detail, but I'll, I'll tell you the answer. But Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, period. And then what the, what, how they translated the Greek is they say, um... They oh, shoot. Oh, I'm losing it. Sorry. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. And it says, but in order to heal him, we must move because the day is closing and the night is coming. Our verse says, so that. Which is different. So that and but in order. Okay, so when I say, no one sinned, but so that the glory of God can be revealed... You are directly relating cause. But the other way that word can be referenced is but in order, which is totally different. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But in order that the glory of God is going to be revealed, we must act now because night is coming. He's basically talking about we need to move if we're going to heal this man. Does that make sense? That's a really nuanced, really deep one. So I don't know other ones that are, are like that, but that's another textbook example case of where Scripture can be, have the filler that kind of gives us a, a different idea. Whew. All right. So then the last one was, where did I get my theology? Um, curiosity. I love scripture memorization. Um, but honestly, I'll tell you that uh, when I became a father, and I realized that I was a better father to my children than my God was to me, that I would never do, the thanks to my kids, that my theology told me that my earthly, my heavenly father did to me. So I had really hard times when, if I want to teach my kids to be careful on the stairs, I would tell them, be careful, listen to daddy, hold daddy's hand. I wouldn't, like, 
kick my child down the stairs. And as they're like tumbling and like, you know, oh, like, now you know to hold my hand. Like, that's what our theology is. So much of parenthood, I don't know if you have kids, but so much of parenthood for me is like, listen to daddy and don't get hurt. Listen to daddy and don't get hurt. And so when I realized that my theology was having this really like difficult, like, why would God do this? Like, I would, I would never, I don't create obstacle courses for my kids. I don't. I don't find their favorite toy and then twist its head off and say, here you go. Now, how are you doing? Are you going to ha- have joy now? Like, I don't do that. Does that make sense? So I think I had a little bit of a crisis about five or six years ago when I became a father and just being like, whoa. Fatherhood is the greatest theology lesson you'll ever have. Parenthood is. And I just began to contrast, what do I believe about God? And would I ever do that to my kids? And every single time I had like, oh, I don't know if I do that to my kids. You know, like in this notion for glory, because people will talk about he's, he's given you cancer, but it's for his glory. I never want to have glory out of anything that's challenging for my kids. I never want to bring light to anything my kids are enduring that is embarrassing, that's painful, that's difficult. And so, like, we find these, like, different kind of parallels, and it, it sounds really righteous and holy to say, well, it's all for your glory, we have to know that to say this for his glory, that he is, is glorified through our suffering, actually is making a really uncomfortable association with an earthly father who, because love covers a multitude of sins. It's not God's nature to expose our pain and our suffering. We're called to live relationally together. We don't go hide. But there's something about this kind of connection with parents and their kids that was drawing my theology to be a little bit, like, challenged. And, and particularly with the will of God, I'd have people say, well, I'm just not going to do anything because it's probably God's will that I, you know, if he does something, he does something. Right. I, I had a theology crisis when my child was born, for sure. And it's, it's okay because, like, I, if you have a newborn, you love this child a long time before they're ever to reciprocate anything that feels like love to you. <laughs> they, they just, they, they take, they take, they take, and they have no appreciation. There's no exchange there, you know? And so realizing that you begin to do this over and abounding love for someone that's not deserving, that, does, that can't reciprocate, that can't understand, and... I realized that, like, I want my kids to, if, if I ever felt like they had the misunderstanding of who I am, or they thought something that I was not who I was, it would really upset me. Because you don't even know, like, I, I loved you when you couldn't love me. I did these things, I, I sacrificed my life for you, and, and this is who I am. And if they ever had the wrong idea about me, it would bother me. So that was it, and then I, you know, certainly went and just went on a journey for all the scriptures in the will of God. The I bought a book on the will of God and it had like 20 verses. And it was mostly like philosophy. It was like the, all the, our understanding about the will of God is philosophy. Maybe it should be based on the Bible. I don't know. So um, that's more or less our, Sorry to get long-winded there, but I feel like there's another question that was on there. But what is it? Trials and tribulations. Yes, I'm going to talk a lot on the last one on that. Um, 
people think that because the Bible instructs us to be joyful, oh, I know what I was going to say. God exploits bad things for good. So, when we, so we're supposed to walk through the valleys of the shadow of death. We're not supposed to lay down. Some people think that I'm in a trial and tribulation, therefore I lay down. Well, the world's going to give you problems and trouble. Jesus assures us that. And we walk to the valley of the shadow of death. We don't lay down. We don't create a house there. There are a lot of people who just, they go through the valley and then they plant. And they just say, well, this is my life. Well, God never designed it for that. He's like, take heart, I've overcome the world. He's our partner in it. And what he does is he allows our testimony from our trial to become somebody else's maybe warning, somebody else's instruction, somebody else's wisdom. And so therefore, God, thank you so much that I didn't marry that person. And that was like really painful. I'm so thankful. But you know what? You had the Holy Spirit inside you that allowed you to interpret that and to be able to say, wow, God, like you showed me something. I'm responding. There's a lot of people who don't do that. Because Jesus mentions two times about people who encounter tribulations and then fall away. Talks about the seed dying because it gets choked out from tribulations. So it's, it's hard for me to say God's going to send a tribulation when actually he, he referenced that a tribulation will actually choke your faith. It seems kind of odd. But we get tripped up because the Bible instructs us to have joy. And I think that, lo- what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You have the fruit of the Spirit. So the enemy comes to give you something to rob you of the fruit of the Spirit. Your best defense against a tribulation is actually to infuse the very thing the devil wants to come and steal. I don't believe that we have joy because God is sending something. I believe he's like, be joyful because it is the reversing agent to the enemy. Because there are finite, a third of the angels fell, right? So there's one-third of the angels fell, this means there's a finite number and billions of believers. That means they kind of have to be efficient. If you're, put, like, we resist the devil, and he'll flee. So we know that he's kind of lazy. So we have joy as the punch back in the face. Like, I, I'm, I'm ready for this. I believe our absence of joy can prolong the season we stay stuck. It may not feel like, because God does not expect you to have joy over something that's terrible. He's not asking you to have joy for like, oh, I love the joy because, you know, everything fell apart. My wife left me. We have joy because, God, you're so good. This really sucks, but you are so good, and I'm going to praise you because you're good. You're for me, not against me. I don't know how we got all this theology when we have clear verses like, I'm for you, not against you, and we're like, God's really against me with this thing. But we have joy because it's the reversing agent. It's the punch back in the face to the enemy's attacks. And that's what you don't see in Job. Job laid down and questioned why. Anyways. Did you have a question back there, sir? Yeah, I do. Um all my life, I've lived as God's will is just peace of mind, and that's what he wants for me. But lately, I've been going through some stuff, and um, one day I told God, after the church had been praying for me for a couple months, 
if you want me as your warrior, you show me something. And um, a couple weeks ago, he showed me something. Um, I have a bad liver, and I have had tumors in my liver for over a year. I've had CAT scans like for the last six months, and they've always been there. My last one, my doctor called me on Sunday after church where I got prayed for it at the altar, and she can't find the tumors anymore. Oh, Amen. Wow. So I'm awesome. living my life as a warrior for God now. I want to make sure that I'm doing God's will because I have no room to spare for wasting anymore. Yeah. That's super encouraging. I'm so excited for you. So is the question of how do I know what to do now? I'll go, back to, um, I'll go back to my kids, and I'll give you Colossians 3.23. It says, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Whatever you do. So, so I, I reserve the right for God to give me more clear direction. And I tell my kids, do this. Like, I reserve the right to tell my kids when I've made it really clear. In the absence of it, I kind of leave it to them. So if my kids ask me, Dad, should I play with my figurine or my doll or my bike. Whatever, baby, just don't get hurt. Hear my voice. Be connected to me. Don't get hurt. And so I would say that sometimes people can, they can overcomplicate the freedom that we have in the Lord. We are given the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So we are actually charged to live practically. We're supposed to, I'm good at software. I'm not good at math. I probably shouldn't become a physicist. So I'm going to use my practical wisdom to apply. God has given me innate things. He's given me a sphere of influence. And I should use what he's given me in a practical way. That's wise. Then we have the revelation where God is revealing things like new areas or new territories. He's giving you opportunities, and we respond from that revelation. So I would say if, if God said, I need you to do X, Y, and Z, because we're supposed to test the spirits, 1 John 4, 1, test the spirits, because many false prophets have gone on the world. We're actually called to test things. So if someone says, God's telling me to leave my wife, I probably need to test that spirit because that is contrary to what he would say. Right? So I, I cannot, no matter how I feel, I cannot allow it to violate what is a direct command in obedience in the Scriptures. So I would look to maybe, is there revelation for what he's made clear? And is it, what I'm leading, is it in violation of any other commands he has? And if not, I'd just be free. I'd enjoy, I, I'd share that testimony everywhere you can go. I would take pictures, I'd tell everybody, like, do you, when, when God gives you a breakthrough like that, it's in seed format. And I think that he wants to see where that could grow and how it could have greater series of influence. But as opposed to, should you go to seminary? It would be something that someone might say of that. Like, I, I would say no. Unless it's like in your heart a desire, but if you feel like you need to be powerful for God because of this, that he's giving you this divine sign, I say, do whatever you feel brings glory and fame to his name. Make the testimony famous. And he's satisfied with you. Last one. Last one. I'm taking so much of you guys' time. I'm so okay. sorry, guys. This is what we're going to do. 
if you guys have questions, we got a whole week to think about them. <laughs> and so write down your questions because um, I had another question, someone to ask me. Yeah. If if because um, we gave some books away tonight to our singles community, how can we get your book so we could dive deeper? Yeah. So willofgod.com. Yes, I went and bought the domain name, and yes, I paid a lot of money for it. Because in software, I feel like a responsibility that if I have the revelation, I should make it accessible and easy to find. So willofgod.com is the website for the book. On there, you can hit buy now. It'll take you to a page. And if you use the word real life all together, no spaces, it'll give you the audio version as well as the e-version, the Kindle um, PDF version for free. So you have that. So go and enjoy that. I'd be delighted for you guys to have it. And then um, I've just promised the Lord that anywhere I get invited to speak, I'm just going to give free books away. So if we run out and you guys want it, I'll get you guys new books. So I don't want anybody to have to, unless you really, really insist, which is fine. Um, I really want, I want everybody to know that God has made you powerful. He's good. And that um, we have a great call in our lives. Will you just pray for us, close our time? <laughs> sure. I'm not closing this, man. Oh, man. This is you. Oh, I just, I just see, a, I see a picture of people looking down and seeing that they've got armor on, that they are much more powerful, they're much more equipped, that they are, are so much greater than they ever imagined. And I just, I break the limits of the identity of a sinner saved by grace. You're not a sinner saved by grace. You're a Holy Spirit superhero residing on earth. And Lord, thank you that you live in us. God, I, I just break any confusion that we're in competition with you for glory. It's not even close that you live in us. And so, Lord, our, our lives that we live here are living sacrifices to you. So, Lord, we, we break any fear of living a powerful life as if it's going to steal glory from you. And we say we're not in competition with you. We are partner with you. We are powerful people. And so, Lord, I just declare for people to have a new vision for their own power that's from you, that's enabled through you. And, Lord, we, we just thank you for how you, you love us so much to reveal clarity in your words. And, God, I just pray anything that, um, where there's confusion, you bring clarity. And anywhere that, Lord, there's clarity that can provide people with action, that they would step into it. So, Lord, we just bless this community, this, this body here, to be powerful, to know who you are, but also to, to live lives that are worthy of changing the world. I believe this is a room full of world changers. God didn't just need more people in heaven. He needed more people on earth that would make his name famous and ransom the world for him and to him. And so we just declare that over this room and this body in Jesus' name.